This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. August already. An August month. What does August. that word mean? When you it say means someone's like, August. I think it means they're like austere and distinguished. They're not hot and damp and sweaty and oppressively no. humid. The dictionary says um, respected and impressive, which is pretty much what I said. I don't think the month of August is respected or impressive. God, I'm just like so. It's I, how much inf- how much I is TMI because I am just tired of swaying through everything that I wear like three times a day. It sucks. I hate it. It's really bad. How anyone it. is so wearing gross. clothes I'm right so now? So hot all the time. <laughs> God, welcome, welcome to our podcast. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Just a couple of sweaty book boys. Yes, here on Overdue, and there. Yeah, it's just just hope everyone is taking care of themselves as however they can, because I am very sweaty, is what I know. Stay cool. Yeah. Stay what are cool. your What are your tips for staying cool? Uh, Aside wearing, from turn the air conditioning on. Wearing sunglasses, um, smoking Joe Camels. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yeah, those are both cool. Listening slash playing slash talking about jazz. Uh-huh. Um, watching Chris Farley movies. Took a real I turn like, there. <laughs> I like to drive a car faster. Oh, that's cool. The signs say that I'm allowed to drive a car. Let's talk about books, shall we? <laughs> so every week, one of us reads a book and tells the other one about it. And it's a book... That the person reading it has never read before. And sometimes it's a classic novel. Sometimes it's something a little goofy. This week, definitely classic, not goofy, not even a little bit. So we're just kind of, I think we're just kind of getting our goof jitters out here early. Yeah. And we might like, there's some, so we're talking about The Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank, um, recommended to us by one of our Patreon supporters, Carrie. Thank you, Carrie. Um, there's some stuff in this book that I didn't know was in it because I'm a dummy and never read it. Oh yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of so it, it's there's a lot of like just adolescent stuff in it. Yeah, which, uh, it's it's not a it's not a dour book. No, not a surprising. The con- contextually, yeah. it is dour. Yeah, because of the things that happen. Yeah, to this to this girl. So but, uh, we'll talk today about the publication history. Um, I have a couple like big picture things I want to make sure we hit on the book. I don't really have like a take because it's the diary of Anne Frank. Like you don't Sometimes have takes you don't on need that a book. Take, yeah, maybe Sometimes you just society has found the right take. And Sometimes we don't need to add an if, extra one. If you find yourself with a take in your hand, just like put it away in I a drawer. I did find a, a take in the New Yorker. Uh oh from 1997 that was complaining not about the diary but about the way that um it had been published like overly sentimental people had sort of hijacked it oh that's like a tale of human empowerment or something that's an interesting take so like keep that in mind i guess as you as you um as we talk about this but uh yeah that was that was the one like not even contrarian but like the one thing that stuck out like as being different than the rest of the critical consensus. Yes, yes. Um, and so I will say, for the record, I read the translation done by Susan Masodi in 1995, and then the later copyright was 2001. It follows an English edition from 89 um, that is referred to as like the definitive critical edition or so- something that it combines... Multi- it has like multiple editions from Anne as well as like the first English translation from the 50s. Do you, do you want me just to like yeah, run hit me, through hit me. the publication history? Because it's pretty convoluted. So um, Anne Frank um, 
was born to Otto and Edith Frank in 1929 and died sometime in early 1945. We don't know exactly when, but most estimates say February or March. Um, and then this diary, which is the one published thing that that with her name on it because she was a child, um, covers her life um, in hiding during the German occupation of the Netherlands during World War II. So this covers the from 1942 to 1944. And then what we know of Anne's life after is from um, survivors who spoke with her while mm-hmm. she was in one of the concentration camps or like records. So, um, publication history. So this, this was once, um, once the war was over, we're talking like 1945 ish, like later in 1945, um, a family friend, uh, Meep Gies gave, um, Otto Frank these diaries that had survived. Um, so there are two versions. Version A is a, an earlier version that's like spread out across two notebooks. Version B is a collection of like loose papers that Anne started like revising and, and changing and putting together once she heard a member of the Dutch government in exile say that they wanted to collect and publish stories of um, survivors. Yeah, after that's the war was over. That's interesting because like so reading my edition, and I think other editions have this as well right is that there are sections where it's going in order and then all of a sudden it'll be like an extra note from Anne from 1944 and she's like looking back at what she wrote and commenting um she also like rewrote some scenes because she like wanted them to flow better um some of the naming conventions changed the big thing is that the entire diary all of the entries are addressed to the diary and the fictional like character named kitty that she Mm -hmm. invented to write her letters to um i it is my understanding that earlier entries weren't all addressed to kitty and Anne went back and like made that consistent yeah that was that was a version b thing i think um and so um early well, like like Otto had all these things he was reading them he was kind of taken aback by because you know what father knows everything that their 15 year old daughter is no is father thinking. does no father does and so he was getting this kind of kind of look into her inner life and he shared it with some other family members and they were like hey you should you should try and, and publish this because I think this has you know this has value and also obviously she, she wanted to be a writer she intended at least part of this in some way for for some kind of publication. Yep. Um, so, um, Otto kind of compiles together a, a, um, combination of, of A and B. I'm not sure how much of what he originally did like survives in, in modern editions, but he started passing that around and trying to get it published. And, um, eventually he did the first Dutch publication happened in uh 47. Yep. Um, the publishers though were a little, so so Otto removed entries about that that had like criticism of family members, particularly Anne's mother. Mm-hmm. And the publisher wanted removed anything that dealt with Anne's sexuality, which is kind of interesting to me because like growing up with the version that we have now, like what I knew about the book, like I re- I read it a long, long, long time ago, but what I knew about it going into it was that, you know, it was both about the lead up to or just like what it was like to be Jewish during the Holocaust during World War II and also what it was like to be adolescent. Like I I knew that the book was about those two things. So to, to hear that like part of that was just completely absent from the early versions and for like decades and decades, it was that way. Well, and it's kind of wild to me. And like a bunch of American schools and library systems have like banned it or censored it or, not used up-to-date versions on purpose because of sexual content, which is like, it's not cool. Yeah. Like women are going to menstruate whether you approve of it or not. Yeah. Cause it's not even like, get over it. There's not even like sex in the book. It's just like a a girl learning about her body and about what it is to be a woman and thinking about that. And, and, her identity attached to it so yeah Mm -hmm. it's very that's the kind of stuff that really bums me out about american puritanism so um public well i mean that this this was even in the original dutch that's true this wasn't even an american thing but but yeah i i know what you mean um 
so it was published in in a bunch of different countries like Germany and France in 1950 and then finally the first English uh, translation came out in the U.S. in uh, 1952 under the current title. Um, the intro to that version was written by Eleanor Roosevelt. I don't know if uh, old Eleanor Roosevelt still has an intro in the current version. You can kind of I... look while I keep going. Um, but there was so so like you mentioned, there was a critical edition published in 1986 that had it, it was it was meant to be comprehensive. I think it had both versions A and B. Um, along with restored stuff that had been cut out of the original version. And then um, that also in 86 came with a confirmation of the diary's authenticity based on analysis of like the paper and the inks and then that kind of stuff. And um, what'd you say the, how'd you pronounce the translator's name? Uh, I said Susan, Susan Masodi. Yeah. Susan Masodi um, released this, this translation originally in 1995 and my understanding is that this is the first English version that included all of the stuff that had been excluded from the earlier uh, huh. versions. Okay. Um, and then uh, as recently, so in May of 2018, this is the most recent development on, on this thing. It was announced that in 2016, during a like routine check of the original diary's condition, they um, found these couple of pages that had been pasted over with other pieces of paper that actually had more writing under them. Hmm. Um, and it was like dirty jokes and, and some other just like little things. But um, yeah, so that's, that's the full history. I don't know if those have been published anywhere, like in, in any editions of the book yet, but um, one assumes that they will be worked into the, you know, the, I guess canonical version for lack of a better word at some point. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if the forward that I read that is in this book is the Eleanor Roosevelt one. It doesn't credit her in any way in this book. So I don't think that it is. Okay. Um, and I'm having a hard time finding it like on Google to see what it is. Sure. Um, I did find interesting, um, as we wrap up some of you were talking about them doing the forensic study to determine that it was her, uh, that also there's been some, so the, the estate, uh, you know, Otto Frank passed away in 1980 and then this foundation, the Anne Frank fund, like, you know, took the copyright from there. Um, and the copyright expired to the Dutch version in 2016 and they announced, the foundation did, that Otto Frank technically co-authored the book by doing all of the editing that he did, which was oh, not so are they, like, like positively they're received to... because they were trying to extend the copyright. Right, because the copyright is is from, what, the publication date or the date of the, do the author's death? It's is a European, right? yeah, it's European law, so it's a little bit different, but I think it is Ugh, author's European law. I think it's Ugh. author's death, but it might be a shorter timetable than in America. Was this law thinks it's better than me because it's European? <laughs> it definitely. <is>. Ugh. <laughs> um, but that's always just a thing I'm fascinated by, like our the relationship between it crops up on the show all the time, like the relationship between the art and the estate of the artist, not the artist themselves. Yeah, right. Um. Yeah, it's just not, there's no easy answers because it's like, I certainly am very sympathetic to a, an institution that sole mission is to preserve the work of this person and, and the memory and life of this person. And yet, if like laws are going to make that person's work more accessible, that's cool. But if it, it makes it easier for people to, you know, mess with it or, or whatever like that. Yeah, and just yeah. copyright law is it's a bizarre. mess everywhere. Like it's particularly <laughs> horrible in the in the US where I think it's largely dictated by like keeping Mickey Mouse yeah, man. in a private company's hands. Well we've got to shut down the podcast because we just domain, criticize but... the mouse and the mouse owns everything. So Yeah, sorry. Why don't we Whoops. take a quick break and if we come back, uh it means that the mouse doesn't know yet. Shh don't tell me. Andrew, you want some money? Yeah, okay. Well, can you just like hold on? Let me get my payment app. 
Okay. Uh, and you can just like wire me 20 bucks. Okay. Well, while I do that, uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to start that right now. Beep, boop, beep, boop, boop. Uh, your $20 is on its way. Cha-ching. That was the noise of me getting $20. <laughs> if you want some more money um, or you're thinking about saving money, cool. you Cool. Can might... you just like send me another $20? <laughs> no. I want you to listen to a, uh, information about one of our sponsors, Lightstream. Um, if you, Andrew, are thinking about saving money this summer, not just the money you get from me, why not pay less interest on your credit card balances? You can refinance with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Uh, it's an easy way to save hundreds of thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate. They've got uh, consolidation loans from 5.89% uh, APR if you're using auto pay, and that's like lower than the average interest rate of 18. It's a lot of, it's a lot of numbers, but it's a low It's number. a low lot of numbers. Um, yeah. And uh, it's possible you could get your funds as soon as the day you apply. Uh, And Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees. So say goodbye to the high interest credit cards this summer and start saving with Lightstream. Now, Andrew, I can only give you $20 like more than once. So maybe you should think about this if you need a little more money. Okay. Uh, you can save even more with an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. And the only way to get this is to go to lightstream.com slash overdue. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash overdue. Andrew, there's a disclaimer here in my copy. Could you read it for me real quick? Subject credit approval. Rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers a subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information. Okay, but I need that twenty dollars back. So uh, next, the next no, sponsor wait, wait. of Overdue <laughs> is Squarespace. No. You know them, you love them. I I do. I also love twenty dollars. Craig, I would love to give you your twenty dollars back, but I already spent it on Craig gave Andrew twenty dollars Now, how did you do? How did you make that website so fast? I made it with Squarespace. It's because it was so easy to do. <laughs> How was it so easy? Tell me. It was so easy because Squarespace makes it easy to turn my cool idea, which in this case is getting $20 from you, into a new website. You can showcase your work, blog, or publish content, sell sell products and services of all kinds, promote your physical or online business, announce an upcoming event or special project, and more. And Squarespace helps you do this by giving you beautiful templates created by world-class designers. Uh, e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything, the ability to customize look and feel settings, products, and more with just a few clicks. You don't got to muck around with code. You don't got to worry about patching stuff. You got free and secure hosting, and you've got 24-7 award-winning customer support if anything happens to go wrong. Yeah, so, I use our I use our website every week. It's a Squarespace website, and I'm a mm-hmm. dummy who just gave Andrew $20 twice, so like, you can do it. With Squarespace. If Craig, if Craig can do it, you can do it. So uh, head to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. And uh, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. Give me website. that $20. Thief. Greg, we're back. We're back. Um, so, where do you want to? Do you, you ever start? keep a diary? Do I ever keep it? Does a live journal count? <laughs> well, that's my answer. I've never successfully kept a handwritten diary. I think I've started about five. Um, I started a Tumblr once, and I had a live journal. I ever, I feel like I ever wrote thoughts down on paper, but basically as early as I had, like as the very first like MS-DOS dual floppy computer that I got like for free from someone at church because we didn't have a computer, (laughs) like the, the old, old version of Lotus Notes or whatever it was that ran on that thing. As soon as I could write it down in computer form, I was doing that instead of handwriting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting reading a diary because i don't think i've read one either that wasn't like a fictional account like i've i guess i've i've read like some primary source documents from authors and you've read like like zangas and stuff 
Yeah, I've read Zangas, of course. It's just that like Anne Frank's diary doesn't have like a little emoji to describe how she was feeling when she wrote well, the entry. And and the thing that we certainly modern people here in the twenty first century keep diaries, but like the thing about the the whole weblog phenomenon mm-hmm. is that it is meant to be read by other people. And certainly It is. It is inherently performative. Yeah. And so there are elements to this diary that aren't as performative right we talked about how it wasn't until two years after she started keeping it that she actually is aware that people might read it and she doesn't like she doesn't decide that right she she hears about it on the radio in 1944 and she's like everybody in the house knows i have this diary and thinks that maybe people would want to read it later and i'm certainly thinking about it but that's kind of crazy because Two years ago, I said some wild stuff. <laughs> like, um, and, and so it's just an interesting, it's voyeuristic, it's intimate, it reveals a surprising, certainly to me as, as a reader who's very ignorant going in, um, a surprising amount of self-awareness and self-knowledge that I I hoped I had some of at 13, but I bet I didn't. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask what the, like, the particular thing you were ignorant about going in, but I'm just going to assume that it's kind of a, a an all-reaching, mostly sort of comprehensive all, kind of ignorance. <laughs> a little bit of comprehensive ignorance, um, a, a specific ignorance about the adolescent elements of the book. Um, and I don't mean that as a qualitative thing, but as a as a um, substance thing, as we alluded to, like yeah, the, I do I do think it's it's it w- it's probably pretty common for someone to go into it expecting like here here is a, a book about the Holocaust or about someone who died in the Holocaust, and then to also get all this stuff about a young woman's budding sexuality, yeah, mixed and, in. yeah, and that it's not just. S- sexuality but it's it's who am i and who am i in relationship to my parents and my sure, sister sure, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. um so I, I there are a couple like big threads of the book that i want to talk about and one is just the like how it functions as a diary in as a as a holocaust diary as a primary source document of the holocaust so like moving from when she gets it to the actual like here's what you can learn about that period or about someone from that period based on this document. Then there's the beat the her as a teen stuff that was the most revelatory for me as someone who didn't really know a lot about the book. Um, and is also like, it's, it's a huge reason why the book endures. I, I have to imagine because it is, it is so human and so personal. Yeah, um, which like like we mentioned earlier is kind of funny because it was not it just did not exist in published versions yeah. of the book for like thirty years, it's forty pretty years. Pretty wild. Yeah. Um and then uh then just kinda as we'll as we'll close out, there's the you alluded to this in the intro, the kind of triumph of the human spirit element that is certainly there but it is not as cut and dry as you might think. Um, And then just the awareness of like reading this primary source document with the knowledge of what's going to happen like that, that you don't, not every book has that at play. Some books, you know, some stories do that on purpose, but um, it certainly lends it a different uh, air to the reading so yeah i guess to to um because i don't i don't think actually we talked about her death in mm-hmm. the in the author section just to like recreate the experience of of knowing fully oh, sure. what's going yeah. to happen when you're reading this for for the listener um and frank died in the bergen belsen concentration camp um probably of typhus but records are so bad and so many people died that we don't know for sure yep in uh, February or March of 1945, the last people who saw her were some friends she had known. They talked to her like through a fence. She was emaciated. She was she was shaking. Um, her sister, who died before her, just a little, just yep. a little bit before her, um, was so sick that she could not even like leave her bunk. Mm. And she said because she believed her her mother and father both to be dead that she did not want to live anymore either. Yeah, makes sense. 
yeah, yeah. they were they were separated from them. The, Otto yeah. Frank was the only one. From... He was the only member of the family who survived. The, yeah, her her mother died in. in um, the people I don't that if it was Auschwitz that she died in, they they got moved around. A they couple did. Of they, times. A, a couple of them got sent to Auschwitz, but then got sent to other places as well. Yeah, um, right. And and the family that they were staying with, all of all, none of them made it either. Um, so th- that is included in the text as an afterword. Um, the book, you know, the diary just ends. There is a like series of kind of end notes for a couple of different spots in the book. And then there's an afterward where you find out what happened to everyone, which is heartbreaking. Um, So let's just talk about the beginning of the diary. And then I will kind of try to jump to these topics as best I can and keep me keep me rolling as we go. So the book opens with her getting the diary for her birthday. And she says, I hope I will be able to confide everything to you as I have never been able to confide in anyone. And I hope you will be a great source of comfort and support. So from the jump, Anne is like, I'm a lonely kid. Like I have friends, but I don't have a true friend, she says a number of times. Um she, and like she, she, how she got along with her family was kind of mixed, right? Like she and her mother didn't really get along super well. Her, she had a decent relationship with her father, but he just wasn't like around as much. And then she and her sister do what siblings do, which is, you know, it ebbs and it, it waxes and wanes. Yeah. And even her relationship with her mom at times waxes and wanes. But like the, if you're thinking about it, think about it like a, maybe like a sine wave or something like the the good swings of her relationship with her mom are are very low and the bad swings are like really deep like she never yeah, gets yeah, into yeah. a great space with her mom but she always goes into like a terrible place <laughs> um so the beginning of the diary is like where you know she's just out living her life um it's 1942 so uh Holland the Netherlands have surrendered as of 1940 so Germany is in charge. Um, there are laws about what Jews can and cannot do. Um, she, you know, there's a page where she lists a series of restrictions, including like not owning bikes and not being able to take the train and uh, limited hours when you can shop and all sorts of yeah. stuff that is just really remarkable to read and print. Um, yeah, like like something, I and mean, if you do some additional research, like Meep G's, the um, she worked the, at Otto's store. Yeah, she's a friend of the family. Yeah. Right, she's a friend of the family, and and her husband um, actually was give like Otto gave him his Otto's company because he did not want to have it confiscated for being like owned by a Jewish person. Like oh, the yeah. Jewish people had to go to their own separate school. Like it, it was pretty bad. And, um, and yeah, the reason they're in hiding is cause in, in 42, I think they started stepping up like, you know, the, the rounding up of people and, yes. and shipping them off. Yeah. So, um, but before we even get to that moment where they have to run into hiding, we get a couple entries from Anne where she's just like a kid telling her new diary about all the kids at school and it's really charming and she's like oh here's my best friend jackie uh she's supposed to be my best friend but i've never had a real best friend that's why i have a diary um (laughs) she's like one girl is nice but dumb and i think they're gonna hold her back a year but i'm not gonna tell her that and then there's a note that's like Anne added later she didn't get held back (laughs) (laughs) um she talks about how all the boys have filthy minds um, she talks about the girls that are stuck up and like uh, they talk too much. And one, she says, they say she can't stand me, but I don't care since I don't like her much either. And Ooh. it's just like, this is just a, a teen just living. This is very like hashtag teen life. Um, and you, in these passages, you only get very oblique references. Um, you know, when she's, she, she'll take the, the time to talk about like the restrictions on Jews. But when she's talking about the people she's dealing with on a day-to-day basis, you more, you're more likely to bump up against something like uh, she's talking about the boys. Werner Joseph is nice too, but all the changes taking place lately have made him too quiet. So he seems boring. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, she's just trying to live her life. And 
you know, get along with people or not get along with people and the realities of the time encroach on it, but she can only carry so much of that in her brain without just like losing it. Yeah, because she's a kid. Because she's a kid. Um, so in 1942, the family gets a call from the SS. Um, and it's actually about Margot, who's 16 at the time, and they're going to take her away. And so this bumps up their plan. They had already started a plan to move into the secret annex uh, above Otto Frank's like spice business. Like it was like trading spices for use in jams and stuff. Yeah, he had he had <laughs> his businesses are kind of weird. Like he is his first is like original business was big on uh, pectin. Sure, which is like the the bits of fruit that like makes Jello into mm. Jello, <laughs> kind of more or less. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. Um. And they've got. A, you're just gonna look up pectin right now. No, aren't just you? I. I remember pe- the the word pectin comes from ancient Greek, uh, meaning congealed or curdled, Ew. which is just like super appetizing. Well, his yeah, his business is named o- Opecta, so that all checks out. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's used in jams and jellies to make it jelly. So they had been slowly moving furniture and things out of their house. Some of it to the annex, presumably. Um, with the knowledge that they would get called at some point. Um, his business partner, Mr. Von Don, which I believe their real name is Von Pels, uh, and uh, in in the writing and changed it, but the footnotes kind of sort that out. Um, so they go to the, to the Von Dons immediately, and they're like, yo, we gotta go. We gotta do this thing. Get ready. So the... It's worth noting that there's like a, a cast of helpers that help hide them. Um, and in this text, I believe it's all their real names. There's a note in the foreword that says there have been editions where their real names were not used, but the Institute of War Documentation of the Netherlands has been like, no, you use those people's real names. Like, we need to mm-hmm. know who they were because that's important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so Mr. Kugler, Mr. Kleiman, Meep, as we've talked about, her husband Jan, and Bep, who's a typist, um, they are aware that the family's moving in on this like third floor apartment thing. Um, the Von Dons arrive later. They arrange with the renter of their build from their building, Mr. Goldschmidt, that like to tell a weird story to the cops about where they were running away instead which then becomes like the story in the town of where they went. Um, yeah, he like left a note that they had gone to Switzerland or something. Yeah, to like meet some guy from the army that Otto Frank knew or something. So then that starts getting parroted around town and uh, they remark on the kind of game of telephone that gets played where people are like, I saw them riding down the street on bikes. Like I, just, I knew it happened. And they're just like, no, we're, we're just living up here. It's fine. <laughs> The telephone had been invented. Yes, there was a tele. I don't think Aunt Frank says the game of telephone, but that's what she's talking about. There, okay, wa- there no, were there were telephones. Like, I'm, just, I'm challenging you to make period appropriate references. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the game of Twitter is not what I would have said. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they move into the third floor of 263 Prinzengrat, um, where there is like a living room for the parents, living room, bedroom. Uh, Margot and Anne have a study room and a bedroom. Um, and then there's like a stairs, like a whole whole portion of the book is dedicated to this. So I want to make sure people are aware of what it was. Um, there's stairs up to where the Von Dons live, which has like a kitchen and a bedroom. And their son, Peter, lives with them as well in a side room. Um, it kind of sounds like there's a lot of space, but I know there's not. <laughs> like Anne refers to it as spacious. Um, and those canal houses are not like super tiny. Mm-hmm. but it's definitely a, not a lot of space to be in for two years. With your whole family. With your whole family and a cat named Mushi. Uh, and I thought then, they had to leave Mushi behind. That was a different cat. There's another oh, okay. cat that they that they hang out with. Um, I think I'm pronouncing, I don't know, M-O-U-S-C-H-I. Um, and they cover the entrance to the secret annex with a bookcase so that people don't know it's there. Um, and later they add a dentist named Albert Dussel, 
who winds up rooming with Anne and she really dislikes him because he's sermonizing all the time and doesn't get along with her. Um, that's kind of your cast of characters over the course of the book. Like um, how how much are we? How much of the book is Anne talk telling tales out of school about all these people she has to live with, and how much is like her own internal monologue being transcribed? Um, it is, uh, so let's say seventy percent a combination of the two, and then like snippets of one or the other. So every once in a while we'll get an extended riff where Anne is like thinking about herself and how she is or is not measuring up to what she wants to be or is processing the news. Um, Every once in a while we'll just get these sections that are like the residents of the annex and their feelings about the war. And then it'll Mm -hmm. just be like, Mr. Von Don thinks this and it's like written, not quite from his perspective, but close. Um, The rest of it is a kind of free flow diary voice of I'm so frustrated that my that my mom like forgave Margot for ruining the vacuum cleaner, but I asked to rewrite the grocery list because I thought the handwriting was sloppy and she said, No, that sucks. <laughs> like uh-huh. it's just like the most like flip flop stuff of how she gets treated and and how she feels in in the pecking order of the, of the group. Um, And so that's, that kind of falls for me under the larger like thread of teen Anne and adolescent Anne. Um, The other things that kind of happen just from that outside world perspective are like, there are people bringing them books. They get snippets of news um, from the helpers and then the people who work at the office and bring them stuff um and they're like learning more about the world outside the whole situation is very precarious there are multiple break-ins to the warehouse and to the office that they're always super concerned are either like that that person's gonna find them or the cops are gonna show up because there was a break-in and then the cops are gonna find them right um and then like they get a lot of their news from the bbc radio um, which is a mix of what's going on in the war and how bad things are on the mainland. Um, they, it, and it's like, a, it's like, oh, Turkey might be in the war. Oh, nope, Turkey might not. We don't know. It's like they, they have such incomplete information about what's going on outside. Um, yeah, sure. So, and the teen is going to be a lot of what I remember about this book. And I'm sure as you're, you said earlier, what you remember about this book, because she is just really charming, even when she's talking about how not charming she is. <laughs> like she talks. Same? Yeah, Same. I know. <laughs> um, you know, when, before she, before her family goes in hiding, she's telling stories about how she wins over her teachers at school. She's talking about how much she loves this boy named Peter Schiff who she says, I tell myself he goes around with those other girls just to hide his feelings for me. <laughs> it's, like, it's so cool. That's yeah. That's how that usually works. Um, she, you know, she likes mythology. She likes matinee idols. She wants to be a journalist as we talk to. Um, and then when she moves into the annex, we get the pressure cooker of adolescence, and the fact that you are like becoming a different person or as she even notes like realizing that you are a person which i uh-huh. certainly identify with like that thing where everything after you hit high school feels like you for the most part maybe just yeah. like you were young and dumb but it's still kind of you yeah I, I think i know what you mean yeah yeah um where you start thi- and it's the reason why like teens find parents just parents just don't understand they don't they just don't understand yeah um because you're like dang it i'm a person now and they're like no you can't drive like you don't know (laughs) it's like there there are two sides of a coin and one side is the narcissist one where it's like i'm a person yes and then later is the one where you're like oh everyone else is a person too Yeah, and you hadn't really thought about it that way before. Yeah, right. Um, and so, like, as I said before, you get passages where Anne is just, like, raging about her mom. 
um, and telling stories about times like her mom mocked her for things and uh, then Anne from two years later will show up and be like, I can't believe I wrote this stuff. <laughs> like, I understand why I felt that way. I know why I was upset, but I just handled it very indelicately yeah, and right. didn't consider people's feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the the little sisterhood that happens uh, a couple times between her and Margot, where they either they're like dishing about some of the other residents of the house or there's one snippet I'm, I marked. She asks Margot if she's ugly and Margot says uh, that Margot said that I was cute and had nice eyes, a little vague. Don't you think <laughs> <laughs> she's just really like, I don't know. She's really disarming in how she talks about herself. Do you um, get the talking about like hiding from other people in the space and like talking about them? Do you get I don't remember having a really good sense of the space, like just from the text. I had a hard time with it because um, it's hard to tell like how big it is or like how far apart people can spread because it's like on the one hand. Yeah, there had there ha- there would have to be enough space for people to be able to achieve some kind of privacy, but also you can't have that much space or people are going to notice, "Hey, this house looks really different on the outside and the inside." Yeah, it it helps that it's all on the upper floors of the building. Um I think all told it's like three full floors and an attic um or maybe even four floors sure. depending on I don't know. Um, it is tough to kind of wrap your brain around at times because Anne is really concerned about where she is in space. Um, she does. There is a like a little sketch of it in the edition that I was reading on Kindle, mm-hmm. but it it lays the floors out like side by side. It's not a three. Dim- it's not like from Property Brothers. Like it's not like a three dimensional <laughs> like CAD drawing of what the house is. Uh-huh. Um, it's like they're li- the floor plans are laid out next to each other. So it is a little hard to tell. Um, when she starts, I wouldn't say dating, but when she starts getting involved with the Van Dan son, uh, Peter, she talks a lot about going upstairs to their place and then her and Peter often escape to an attic even above the Van Dance place. Okay. Um, and then the other main like space territorial, there's another territorial battle that happens where like once Mr. Dussel moves in and him and Anne become roomies for some reason, uh, they have to like navigate who can use the desk when, which just like, ugh. it's like the, it's like, you know, navigating time on the family computer, but worse. Yeah. That's like, a, it's a classic like Brady Bunch. Yes. Family <laughs> sharing plot line. Yeah. Yes. Um, and he's like an adult man and he is really snotty about it, which, you know, she loves to be upset at him I for. Mean, just like, welcome to adult men. And yep. like, this is just kind of what they're like. So there, there's just these passages where, you know, she's coming out of a conflict with Mr. Dussel. She's coming out of a conflict with her mom or whatever. And she just sounds the most teen Everyone thinks I'm showing off when I talk, ridiculous when I'm silent, insolent when I answer, cunning when I have a good idea, lazy when I'm tired, selfish when I eat one bite more than I should, stupid, cowardly, calculating, etc., etc. And she's just like, I can't deal with these people. <laughs> I'd like and yet all of those passages will get tempered with constant reminders that she feels that they are lucky and should be grateful. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no, and this is gets to a little bit of that triumph of the human spirit stuff, Andrew. So, like when Dussel first shows up and he tells them about the state of things and people being taken away, um, she's like, "It bummed us out real bad." But then she says, "It won't do us or those outside any good if we continue to be as gloomy as we are now." Um, and there's another passage about like, where would it get us? if we just wander around this house being sad about how we're not out of this house. Right. Because every news report, every person that they talk to is a constant reminder that they are not in a 
camp somewhere. They are not yeah. being shot on the front lines, which is mm-hmm. like, again, the awful irony of the book is that you know that that is the case, that that's going to happen. But yeah, but, th- but it's not yet. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and some of her optimism has this, it reminded me of Walt Whitman has this kind of like, it's inspired by nature, um, like as long as you can see the scun, the the sun, the scun, the, the scun, sun, the sun What's and the, the scun. No, as long as you could see the sun and the sky, <laughs> the scun. That's the Dutch word for sun, don't you know? <laughs> it sounds like if you gave the sun a gun, and then he, the sun tried to make wordplay about it. This is my scun. This is my scun. As long as this anyway, exists... Anyway, phasers set to scun. Let's keep rolling with this thing. She says, as long as this exists, this sunshine and this cloudless sky, and as long as I can enjoy it, how can I be sad? As long as this exists, and that should be forever, I know that there will be solace for every sorrow, whatever the circumstances. Um, so there is this, like, the human spirit is resilient. The human, you know, if we have a true understanding of ourselves, we can persevere and yes, my family is incredibly lucky to be hiding out in this house um, and, and not out in the rest of the world. Yeah. And just to like, I'm, I'm not going to like give the full argument that. So this is um, from a Cynthia Ozick writing um, in the October 1997 issue of The New Yorker. Um, it's called The Misuse of Anne Frank's Diary. Hmm. I'm not going to like fully get into or defend like her stance on, on the, like the sentimentality of, of the way the diaries use sometimes. But like, I just think it's, I just think it's an interesting like counter. Yeah. Hit me. Do you, do you have anything? No, I don't have anything. I I have beyond acknowledging that the point exists. I have no other (laughs) thoughts about it. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. I, I think even, so there are sections, Anne talks a lot about sentimentality in the book, actually, and at times... Oh, actually, I do have a quote. Okay, yeah, hit me. If you want. No, I would love to hear it. Um, it's just, uh, so, this, so this is in the midst of a, of a paragraph. Um, she's quoting a someone else. Uh, we see in Anne Frank's fate, a German drama critic offered our own fate, the tragedy of human existence per se. Um, Hannah Arendt philosopher and Hitler refugee scorn such oceanic expressions, calling it cheap sentimentality at the expense of a great catastrophe. And Bruno Bettelheim, a survivor of Dachau, Dachau and Buchenwald, uh, condemned the play's most touted line, if all men are good, there is never an Auschwitz. A decade after the fall of Nazism, the spirited and sanitized young girl of the play became a vehicle for German communal identification with the victim, not the persecutors. And according to Rosenfeld, a continuing symbol of moral and intellectual convenience. So this is speaking specifically about like a play adaptation of the book. But, you know, yeah. this, is, this is the way that the the work is kind of being digested in, in some circles. That's well, and that's an interesting the fact that the quote you just read mentions um, the German reception of this story. And I don't want to speak to that too much because I, I feel like we might get a little out of our league but Anne does address that a little bit early on in the book she talks about um she actually you know she was born in Germany she understands that her family is German at, at times uh one time she gets really upset and she actually just starts like speaking in German even though she knows she's like that none of them want to do that. Like she just lapses yeah, into it. It must be because she um she lost her German citizenship in 41. Mm. So like mm-hmm. it, it must have been like they lived in the Netherlands, but they're not really like of the Netherlands. It must have been it must have been tough on like a whole nother level to like yes. not not have a home in that sense. She know? says, um fine she's talking about the things that the Germans are doing, and she says, Find specimens of humanity, those Germans, and to think I'm actually one of them. No, that's not true. Hitler took away our nationality long ago. Um and so later on throughout the book she doesn't really identify herself as German um and only identifies herself as a Jew. Uh so that's interesting that this book could in some hands you know, kind of be used to perhaps like sm- smooth over wounds that are that are actually not being dealt with. 
Um, and maybe it, maybe when those wounds were fresh, that was a, a thing that people took offense to. Sure. Um, so as we start to kind of wrap, I want to make sure we don't miss the uh, the adolescent personal discovery aspects of Anne here. Yeah, talk I, about it. Because that was really surprising to me. So like some of it's just, yo, this is a teenager writing in her diary about periods. Like uh, she's reading a book and it's talking about prostitutes and menstruation. And she just says, oh, I long to get my period. Then I'll really be a grown up. It's like, yeah, okay, cool. Um, she like attaches her selfhood to an understanding of her body uh, in a real way. So she says that um, she's like citing another book that girls my age feel very insecure about themselves and are just beginning to discover that they're individuals with their own ideas, thoughts, and habits. I just turned 13 when I came here. So I started thinking about myself and realized that I've become an independent person sooner than most girls. Sometimes when I lie in bed at night, I feel a terrible urge to touch my breasts and listen to the quiet, steady beating of my heart. And then like immediately after that, she talks about her friend Jackie and having a physical attraction to her, um, which is expressed through this lens of like, just like curiosity about the female body because no one's taught her about it. And she recognizes that it's who she is and will like lead her to greater understanding of herself. But there's like a curtain and, you know, like society has placed obstacles to her understanding more. Um, so I was like struck by the the ties that she was making between like knowing herself physically and knowing herself spiritually, emotionally, like as a person. Um, she does like talk for a whole page just about the female like rep- reproductive anatomy. Uh, it's really long. <laughs> and then at the end, <laughs> it's like about like where the clitoris is and like where babies come from and like, how all that interacts with like, you know, going to the bathroom and stuff. And then she just says, that's all there is. And yet it plays such an important role. (laughs) (laughs) And this all come, this is all like coming to a fore as she is developing this relationship with Peter. Um, And this was another element of the book that I was not like, I should have been more aware of going in. Um, Peter, uh, Van Don is the only boy of her age. I think he's like 17, um, so he's like close, but not really. Uh, and she develops an affection for him, but she's not quite sure what it's going to turn into. Um, there's a certain element of him just like being the only boy around. Uh, he's alighting with another Peter that she had a crush on that I mentioned earlier. Um, and she just decides that she's going to like him and develop a relationship with him and part of it is them like talking about sex parts and like Mm -hmm. let's learn about bodies together and it ultimately they go to the warehouse and like turn their cat upside down and look at the cat's junk and like talk about that's how they know it's a boy and it's (laughs) i mean that's right i guess (laughs) And she, so, so, like, she follows this, like, kind of, like, sitcom-y scene between her and Peter up with a, a smart meditation on how parents, you know, send their kids out into the world without really talking to them about sex. And then when kids, like, do learn a little bit about it and they come to their parents and are like, hey, what's the deal here? And their parents are like, no, don't talk about it. <laughs> like, just stop. I don't remember what my talk was. I I did not. I don't have, think I got I a did not real have one. An explicit one, no. I think I mostly got a like don't make dumb decisions talk. I didn't even get a don't I don't know. Like there there was sex ed in Yeah, sure. high school that I went through, but it you know, everyone's just like giggling through the whole thing. Yes. Um and it's, mostly yeah. it was just like, well, you're not gonna have to worry about that till you get married. So uh, yeah, don't uh, don't just don't worry about it. That's true. Um, so all of this narrator, like... <laughs> he did not wait until he got married. <laughs> so all of this very frank discussion is then set against the very adorable 
um like courtship of her and peter that like at most is them kissing each other good night like it it doesn't get past that well and i remember reading like Anne becomes confused like she doesn't trust herself to be feeling feelings about him that are not related to them being in an enclosed space together yeah and then it actually goes another step further where she and this is kind of where their relationship ends by the end of the book is she recognizes that Peter has like really fallen for her and is becoming kind of emotionally dependent on her in a way that now that she's in it she's not sure about right and she actually you know self-reflects and is like hey i used really blunt intimacy to get close to him because that felt like it was necessary and now i've kind of foreclosed every other form of friendship that we could have had Mm -hmm. because it's intimacy or nothing um and and of course they're in this annex together and there's nowhere to go and her parents are like you should be careful and cuz we have nowhere to go <laughs> like mm-hmm. everyone knows that there's something going on um she has like like a mini falling out with her dad where her dad like cautioned her against it and she's like i'm going to do what i want cuz i'm a teen um and they they make up but she takes herself to task for like risking her relationship with her dad over it mm-hmm. um and it the book comes to a close with them waiting for, you know, they're hearing news about liberation. They're hearing news about um, the, like, D-Day, I think, and, and advancements from the American troops and yeah, the English we're, troops. Yeah, because we're getting to the, by the time you're in, like, 44, 45, you're getting to the point where the news from the front was not going to be great. Yeah. For the Germans. For the Germans. Because, like, Russia is actually advancing. Yeah. Um. I think the most success the Germans are having is like taking parts of Italy, but they're they're actually losing the war. It's just like you can keep them, am I right? Yeah, well. <laughs> um <laughs> and they get this like they've been having a hard time with their food and then they get this big like shipment of strawberries from someone and it's really cool and they're eating strawberries with all their food and they're having a great time. And you know you're winding down in the book and you're just kind of waiting for this diary to end. And the last entry in August of 44 is Anne meditating on herself as a, quote, bundle of contradictions. And the kind of lighthearted person she presents versus the deep sentimental person that she knows she can be. But she doesn't like it. Like, people don't think she can be that way. So when they like call her out on it she actually gets very defensive and and aggressive and that's where she runs into trouble um i found this quote so sad that like the last lines are um if only she could find a way to become what i'd like to be and what i could be if only there were no other people in the world so like she's bemoaning how we are uh how we modulate ourselves to serve other people yeah, and she sure. really just like wishes that she could find herself and that's a that's a very teen thing and and most of us come to peace or at least i've i've certainly tried to come to peace with the ways in which i am different people to to different people Mm -hmm. um while still trying to like hold my hold my true self in the center i'm talking like i'm an x-man who's gonna fall apart (laughs) at any second but you know what i mean (laughs) just like you guys listening at home you would be astounded if you knew who not podcast craig was (laughs) Different. He's so different. He never laughs. <laughs> he hates everything. I have no He's interest. just always eating yogurt. <laughs> he just loves yogurt. Like plain, not even like flavors. It's just like plain white yogurt. That's the only thing he eats. <sighs> Man, he's a bore. I don't like talking about him. Yeah, and he also is kind of a boring person. Yeah, well. In addition to being a bore. Um... So that was a like a play on oh like yeah like words like if you were like a like I was a was like, like Pumbaa's a warthog right he's not a boar but it's like that are you also saying he's like boorish too like yeah. boring boring Craig is a boorish boar he's a boorish boar yeah yeah sure so as that was fun that was fun <laughs> that in was an episode fun. in an episode we've without had, a lot we've of had fun. fun here today. Um, <laughs> So then, you know, then it just says that's the last entry of Anne's diary. As I said earlier, we get some end notes and then we get the afterward where we find out that no one made it except for Otto. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah, I, I come away like the tragedy of it all, right, is not just the specifics of the fascist regime that, you know, stole millions of people from the earth um, and suppressed entire cultures and, and threatened to, you know, drive them to extinction. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the factual depiction, it is also like here is a very, here is a, a vibrant life that was extinguished because of that. Like that is unfortunately for many people um we can and it's not i don't say unfortunately it is very difficult for many people i think to comprehend this level of tragedy if there is not like a a human story or a single it helps us process it it helps us latch on to the scale of this immeasurable terrible thing um and you see that in how we report tragedies today in the news like we are i don't think we are well equipped to do it ever (laughs) because people just can't handle numbers that big or they can't be we aren't built as animals to like have emotions that can also do math i guess does that make sense Uh, yeah i guess it uh, yeah um it's intensely frustrating because like even with like so you get you get this one account from this one person that happened to survive against all odds like it shouldn't have like it it should it shouldn't have survived because it was it was a diary kept by somebody who was in hiding that was found by one of their like confidants after they were taken away and saved and then one of her family members just happened to to live and then he just happened to read it and he happened to be able to get it published and it happened to become like this deeply resonated resonating thing that like spread throughout the entire world. But um, of the 107,000 Jews deported from the Netherlands between 1942 and 1944, it is estimated that about 5,000 survived. Yeah. I, w- I did a play last year um, about the, occupation or just after the occupation in the Netherlands and one of the things that was really rough was that um, religious affiliation was part of like the census like the Dutch keep very good records and had very good information on who people were mm-hmm. um, which in when you're not dealing with uh, fascist terror campaigns is just a noble like you're organized but then it can be weaponized against you. And that, that's why the survival rate among Jews in the Netherlands was so terribly low. Well, um, that's why if you are like, if you're like to come forward to 2018, if you're worried about something like a, yep. some kind of Muslim registry, if you're worried about particular questions that may or may not get included on the uh, United States census, yep. like that's the kind of thing historically that you are that that you're worried about a little yes. bit but yeah, yeah just to, to get back to what you were saying like this puts a human face on it but it's still like it just it still can't capture the enormity of what was done no no it can't and and so i found it all the more impressive that it captured um the experience of her just as a young woman um, yeah. And she did such a good job of that. And and it really examined herself in ways that I think a lot of us don't, <laughs> not without external prodding. Like, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, because that, that's that's a lot of external prodding like that. That's the, the stuff that she went through even before the family was captured and, and deported. Yeah, was, yeah. It's going to make you grow up fast. Yeah. And she, yeah, she talks about that a lot. Um, well, that's. The Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Andrew, thanks for revisiting this book with me. You're welcome. Um, if folks, I'm for. <laughs> if folks have thoughts about the episode or want to hit us up on social media, they can do it at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. A bunch of folks reached out in the last week in response to both Stop Homer Time and the Underground Railroad. So thanks to Gabriella, Christine, Michael, Gloria, Tom, uh, Megan, James, Charlotte, Olivia, Josh, Ashley, Murray, Lucas, Christine, Lee, and Marita. You can also send an email to overduepod at gmail.com if you want to write a longer note. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? 
they should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, our RSS feed. You can use those to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they come out, usually on Monday, but, you know, it happens all the time. We're just, you never know when we're going to drop something. We're always keeping you on your toes. Um, we also have links up there to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash overduepod. You can support us and get stuff. We have a new listener page you can use if you are recommending the show to folks and you want to see episodes that that uh, we think are good because we've just done so many and it's so hard to pick, you know? Yeah. So many. And so next week we're going to, it's going to be a little lighter. I'm reading The Tower Treasure, which is the first book in the Hardy Boys series by Franklin W. Dixon and good night. It's, it's going to be quite a ride. <laughs> Golly gee willikers. It's going to be going to be wild i can't wait for you to take me on on a boy mystery that's don't say that ever again <laughs> okay Craig. we'll be back next week with a boy mystery and until we see you then try to be happy That was a HeadGum Podcast.